This podcast is a production of the Ephesus School Network. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Revelation 10, 8-11 you are listening to the Tell Me the Story podcast with your hosts, Blaze Webster and Rowdy Wind. Join us as we engage in a complete read-through of the Holy Scriptures, parsing out the original languages with one question in mind. What is the story? Welcome to the Tell Me the Story podcast. Today we'll be reading Genesis 24, which is the longest chapter in the book of Genesis, so we're going to make this nice and concise. Okay, starting in verse 1. Now Abraham was old and well advanced in years, and the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. And Abraham said to his servant, the oldest of his household, who had charge of all that he had, Put your hand under my thigh, that I may make you swear by the Lord the God of heaven and the God of the earth, that you will not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell, but will go to my country and to my kindred and take a wife for my son Isaac. The servant said to him, Perhaps the woman may not be willing to follow me to this land. Must I then take your son back to the land from which you came? Abraham said to him, See to it that you do not take my son back there. The Lord, the God of heaven, who took me from my father's house and from the land of my kindred, and who spoke to me and swore to me, to your offspring I will give this land. He will send his angel before you, and you shall take a wife for my son from there. But if the woman is not willing to follow you, then you will be free from this oath of mine. Only you must not take my son back there. So the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham, his master, and swore to him concerning this matter. I want to start by discussing the role of Abraham's servant in this passage. I think contextually this is alluding to the previously mentioned Eliezer of Damascus, although the text does not name him specifically. If you remember back in chapter 15, Abram was unhappy with the prospect of the chief slave of his household receiving his inheritance in the absence of an heir. The idea of not only an outsider, but one of the slaves receiving your inheritance was deeply shameful. Of course, since then, God has gifted Abraham with a son through Isaac, but Isaac himself needs to produce progeny and thus needs a wife. Abraham commissions this slave to go out and to find one from his brother Nahor's household. This is important for a few reasons. One, Abraham and Isaac are holding true to the command of God to remain in the land that God had granted to them to sojourn in and not to travel to Mesopotamia themselves. 
In fact, Isaac will live this to the fullest extent by being the only character in Genesis who was born in, lives in, and dies in the promised land. Never does he go out of the bounds of the Syro-Arabian desert, unlike his father Abraham and his son Jacob. Abraham makes it clear that even if the servant is unsuccessful, it is better for him to be free from the commitment than for Isaac to step outside the bounds where God has placed them. Next, the slave's obedience to not only Abraham, but Abraham's God is really astounding here and is representative of Abraham's function as the father of many nations. The slave placing his hand under Abraham's thigh is a sign of this obedience, as well as his mission to increase the progeny of his master. There are also a couple of things that seem problematic that arise some questions when one reads this chapter, and I want to discuss them briefly. I don't have concrete answers, but I at least want to present a couple of options to help develop some additional clarity. The pressing question is, why does Abraham insist that the servant not take a wife for Isaac from the Canaanites, the people around them, but instead go and take a woman from his family back in Mesopotamia? We moderners probably hear this with a mindset of exclusivity, that it would be a bad thing to include Canaanites in the household of Abraham because it would taint the household in some way. And perhaps we think that this is Abraham's mindset or God's mindset. There is a chance that this is the intent of the text due to the cursed nature of the Canaanite people, a la chapter 9 of Genesis, where Noah curses Ham's descendants, the Canaanites. But remember that it is Noah cursing the descendants of Ham, not God. Likewise, there is no instance in the chapters leading up to this where God himself curses them, nor does he command Abraham to disclude the Canaanites from his household for any reason. People who would argue against me might jump to Deuteronomy or Joshua, where God expressly tells the Israelites not to intermarry with the Canaanites whom they are dispossessing. That's all well and good, but that is occurring hundreds of years after this story, and it's for different reasons. It's because those people at that time were succumbing to cultural wickedness. But that's not what's going on here. I mean, Abraham just established peace with the neighboring people groups in Canaan, those very people. We have no reason to believe they are unworthy of intermarrying with. So why does Abraham insist on getting a woman from his family, quote-unquote, back home? I believe that this is once again emphasizing Abraham's obsession with patriarchy and maintaining his household. He finally submitted to God's command to stay in Canaan, but just like he created a loophole when he was hungry and went to Egypt to find some food, he creates a loophole here where he commands his servant to go find a wife outside of Canaan, not from any people, but from the household of his father. So it doesn't really matter if Abraham submits to God's commandment to stay in Canaan, to not go and dwell amongst foreign nations, when he is making his servant go and run errands in those very nations. He is essentially traveling outside the land of Canaan himself via this loophole. So he commands his servant to go and find a wife outside of Canaan, not from any people, but from the household of his own father, from Abraham's father. This detail is explicit. Abraham is rejecting his circumstances, which were brought onto him by his one true father, Elohim, and he is finding a way around his circumstances to secure the type of patriarchal line he desires, which is connected to his human father, all in order to quote-unquote keep it in the family, like any other royal family in human history tends to do. 
Then the servant took ten of his master's camels and departed, taking all sorts of choice gifts from his master, and he arose and went to Mesopotamia to the city of Nahor. And he made the camels kneel down outside the city by the well of water at the time of evening, the time when women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord, God of my master Abraham, please grant me success today and show steadfast love to my master Abraham. Behold, I am standing by the spring of water, and the daughters of the men of the city are coming out to draw water. Let the young woman to whom I should say, Please let down your jar that I may drink, and who shall say, Drink, and I will water your camels, let her be the one whom you have appointed for your servant Isaac. By this time I shall know that you have shown steadfast love to my master. Before he had finished speaking, behold, Rebekah, who was born to Bethuel, the son of Milcah, the wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, came out with her water jar on her shoulder. The young woman was very attractive in appearance, a maiden whom no man had known. She went down to the spring and filled her jar and came up. Then the servant ran to meet her and said, Please give me a little water to drink from your jar. She said, Drink, my lord. And she quickly let down her jar upon her hand and gave him a drink. When she had finished giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have finished drinking. So she quickly emptied her jar into the trough and ran again to the well to draw water. And she drew for all his camels. The man gazed at her in silence to learn whether the Lord had prospered his journey or not. When the camels had finished drinking, the man took a gold ring weighing a half shekel and two bracelets for her arms weighing ten golden shekels and said, Please, tell me whose daughter you are. Is there room in your father's house for us to spend the night? She said to him, I am the daughter of Bethuel the son of Milcah, whom she bore to Nahor. She added, We have plenty of both straw and fodder and room to spend the night. The man bowed his head and worshipped the Lord and said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who has not forsaken his steadfast love and his faithfulness toward my master. As for me, the Lord has led me in the way to the house of my master's kinsman. Then the young woman ran and told her mother's household about these things. Given what we heard after the binding of Isaac, the names of Nahor's family should be a red flag. There's no need to revisit that in detail, but simply put, Mesopotamia is where God called Abraham out of. To revisit this is to revisit Abram's past, which the scripture is fighting against. We see this in Rebekah's name, which has the connotation of tying up or binding. Uh, it's almost like a trap. And then when Jacob is born, he comes out grabbing the heel of his twin brother as the usurper. This imagery of binding is certainly at play there, too. So the story is setting up quite a bit of foreshadowing for the rest of the Genesis narrative. We hear that when the servant reaches Aram Naharaim, which is the Hebrew way of saying Mesopotamia, he stops and prays to God asking for his mission there to be successful. By this he emphasizes the fact that it is God who is appointing the maiden for Isaac and that it is God's will which will either make the trip successful or unsuccessful. And that's the key. The servant is doing only what he has been commanded of him, and nothing more. In the Bible, the less you do, the better. God's commandments are always simple. For Abraham, it was to leave his home in Mesopotamia and to settle in the Syrian desert. Instead of simply doing this, he first settles in Haran, and then briefly stays in Canaan, and then flees to Egypt once he gets hungry. God never commanded him to go to Haran or Egypt. It was a simple command that Abram made complicated because it was uncomfortable for him 
to stay in the desert when he was used to his lofty city life. Here we are seeing the inverse. Abraham's Gentile servant, one of the lowliest people in this pecking order, is simply following the command without any feedback from himself. Another interesting pattern I've noticed from this entire passage is how the text is completely dismissive of Nahor. Bethuel is called the son of Milcah, his mother, and in verse 28, the text refers to Milcah's household. Since we established in an earlier episode that Nahor is evocative of the authors laughing at their Babylonian patronage, this complete emasculation of Nahor as patriarch seems to fit right in with that point. It's like the prophet Ezekiel, who is introduced as a priest, but he's stripped of that function because of his exile in Babylon. In other words, he's away from the temple. He finds himself in the captivity of Tel Abib, which means the Mound of the Fathers. In other words, it is because of the iniquity of the fathers that the exile occurred. Ezekiel's own father, his name is Buzi, which means a descendant of Buz, the despised one. Interestingly, Buz is the son of Nahor, is one of the sons of Nahor, as we read two chapters ago. I feel that this is no coincidence, and it's a common theme throughout the scriptural narrative. It's also interesting that Nahor's wife is Milcah, which is the feminine form of Melech and thus means a queen. Remember that Sarah in Hebrew means princess. So it's really interesting to me that these two brothers, Nahor and Abraham, have wives with regal titles. What exactly does this mean? I don't know, but I think it's a really interesting study that could be made of it. But anyways, I don't want to go off on too much of a tangent. I merely want to impress upon the hearer how foreboding these passages are when you have both the Hebrew and the totality of Scripture in mind. I think the foreboding nature of all of this is exactly what the authors had in mind, especially when one considers the trial, or the litmus test, if you will, for how Abraham's servant is supposed to determine which woman should be a wife for Isaac. So the servant is traveling to Abraham's kin, to the city in Mesopotamia, or Ur, or Babylon, it's all the same region, so it's however you want to think about it. Remember, it's the function of city culture that's important, not historical accuracy. And more specific to this story, it is Abraham's kin, ergo his lofty heritage, that's important. So if we have been honestly listening to the story so far, as well as having been aware of the details that Blaze pointed out about the original Hebrew word choice, then we should immediately perceive this as a bad deal. And you get that with the servant. He doesn't really seem uh, like the most confident fellow. As Blaze said, the servant is aware of the fact that this mission's success is subject to God's whim. This is on display when he prays to God. And what else is on display is the criteria for a good wife. I want us all to recognize that. When I first read this story some years ago, I thought these details were arbitrary. Kind of like a single guy going to the mall and saying, you know what, I'm single, I'm going to ask out the first girl who's wearing a pink shirt at the JCPenney's. Now, hopefully nobody actually does that. But what I mean to say is that these criteria seem to be random. Why a pink shirt? Why the JCPenney? This guy is just leaving things up to this made-up idea of fate and chance. But fate and chance are for those without conviction. And the Bible is a literature built upon a singular conviction. The conviction that we should obey God, which is to spread the mercy he shares with you. And in the Mesopotamian culture the Bible is set in, this spreading of mercy is almost always embodied 
by mercy toward the outsider, the visiting alien or stranger, as it were. Therefore, the criteria that the servant asks God to show him as a litmus test for determining Isaac's future wife is not random. He is essentially saying, Lord God, show me the woman who shows mercy to the outsider, who gives drink to the thirsty, and not even just the thirsty man, but his thirsty camels as well, because that is a good woman. I also think this story about the servant finding Rebecca is foreshadowing Jacob's finding Laban's daughters in future chapters. I won't go too much into it because we haven't yet arrived there in the story, but we can all easily recall the bitterness that befalls Jacob because of his obsession with getting Rachel as a wife. The reason that he is obsessed with her is because of her beauty. He wants her, but Laban gives him Leah instead, and he couldn't care less about her. He wants the pretty one, right? Well, it's interesting that Laban is also present in this chapter we are reading today as Rebecca's brother. Rebecca is also described as being very attractive in appearance, which seems like a pretty arbitrary detail in this story alone. Abraham's servant did not include physical beauty in his litmus test, so why does the text make a point of stating that she is attractive in appearance? Well, I think for the very reason I mentioned, to connect it to the future story of Jacob and Rachel. It seems to be that this family is simply made up of some very attractive women, and just like the appeal of the city tempts the families of scripture, a woman's beauty is a common device used to tempt our protagonists. Perhaps if Isaac had acted incorrectly and traveled here to find his own wife, he would have fallen prey to the physical beauty of the women around him and chosen a wife for the wrong reasons, just like his son Jacob does with Rachel. Rebecca had a brother whose name was Laban. Laban ran out toward the man to the spring. As soon as he saw the ring and the bracelets on his sister's arms, and he heard the words of Rebecca, his sister, thus the man spoke to me. He went to the man, and behold, he was standing by the camels at the spring. He said, Come in, O blessed of the Lord. Why do you stand outside? For I have prepared the house and a place for the camels. So the man came to the house and unharnessed the camels and gave straw and fodder to the camels. And there was water to wash his feet and the feet of the men who were with him. Then food was set before him to eat. But he said, I will not eat until I have said what I have to say. He said, Speak on. So he said, I am Abraham's servant. The Lord has greatly blessed my master, and he has become great. He has given him flocks and herds, silver and gold, male servants and female servants, camels and donkeys. And Sarah, my master's wife, bore a son to my master when she was old, and to him he has given all that he has. My master made me swear, saying, You shall not take a wife for my son from the daughters of the Canaanites, in whose land I dwell. But you shall go to my father's house and to my clan and take a wife for my son. And I said to my master, Perhaps the woman will not follow me. But he said to me, The Lord before whom I have walked will send his angel with you and prepare your way. You shall take a wife for my son from my clan and from my father's house. Then you will be free from my oath when you come to my clan, and if they will not give her to you, you will be free from my oath. I came today to the spring and said, O Lord, the God of my master Abraham, if now you are prospering the way that I go, behold, I am standing by the spring of water. Let the virgin who comes out to draw water, to whom I shall say, Please give me a little water from your jar to drink. And who will say to me, Drink, and I will draw for your camels also. Let her be the woman whom the Lord has appointed for my master's son. 
Before I had finished speaking in my heart, behold, Rebekah came out with her water jar on her shoulder, and she went down to the spring and drew water. I said to her, Please let me drink. She quickly let down her water jar from her shoulder and said, Drink, and I will give your camels drink also. So I drank, and she gave the camels drink also. Then I went, and I asked her, Whose daughter are you? She said, The daughter of Bethuel, Nahor's son, whom Milcah bore to him. So I put the ring on her nose and the bracelets on her arms. Then I bowed my head and worshipped the Lord and blessed the Lord, the God of my master Abraham, who had led me by the right way to take the daughter of my master's kinsman for a son. So then, if you are going to show steadfast love and faithfulness to my master, tell me, and if not, tell me that I may turn to the right or to the left. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The thing has come from the Lord. We cannot speak to you, good or bad. Behold, Rebekah is before you. Take her and go, and let her be the wife of your master's son, as the Lord has spoken. In the very next section, we get a mention of Rebekah's brother Laban, who will be a very important character later on. Laban literally means white in Hebrew, but it also has the connotation of something you build a building with. For example, this comes from the story of the Tower of Babel, where Laban clearly refers to the building materials of, of the Babylonians. It, it, that, that's the word, Laban, in Hebrew, the building materials. This is critical to understanding Laban's function because his nephew Jacob will become trapped in his servitude for 14 years. In verse 50, we have a moment where Laban and Bethuel clearly submit to the will of the scriptural God and give Rebekah to the servant to take to Abraham. The servant is also faithful in that he simply presents to Laban and Bethuel what he is there for and allows them to have a clear choice whether they will proceed or not. The servant is only there to find a wife from one of Abraham's kinsmen and nothing else. This contrasts the later story when Isaac sends Jacob to Bethuel's household to find a wife. Instead of going there simply for a wife, Jacob becomes set on Rachel even though Leah is the one who is offered to him. As a result, Jacob gets stuck in Padan Aram trying to milk everything he can from Laban. This contrast should be in our minds as we continue to read through the book of Genesis. When Abraham's servant heard their words, he bowed himself to the earth before the Lord. And the servant brought out jewelry of silver and of gold and garments and gave them to Rebekah. He also gave to her brother and to her mother costly ornaments. And he and the men who were with him ate and drank, and they spent the night there. When they arose in the morning, he said, Send me away to my master. Her brother and her mother said, Let the young woman remain with us a while, at least ten days. After that she may go. But he said to them, Do not delay me, since the Lord has prospered my way. Send me away, that I may go to my master. They said, Let us call the young woman and ask her. And they called Rebekah and said to her, Will you go with this man? She said, I will go. So they sent away Rebekah their sister and her nurse, and Abraham's servant and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said to her, our sister, may you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gate of those who hate him. Then Rebekah and her young women arose and rode on the camels and followed the man. Thus the servant took Rebekah and went his way. Now Isaac had returned from Beer Lahai Roy and was dwelling in the Negeb. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field toward evening. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, there were camels coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes, and when she saw Isaac, she dismounted from the camel and said to the servant, Who is that man walking in the field to meet us? The servant said, It is my master. 
So she took her veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things he had done. Then Isaac brought her into the tent of Sarah, his mother, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife, and he loved her. So Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. The remainder of this chapter is pretty straightforward, but I do have one thing to comment on, and that is the fact that the English text we read from says that Isaac went out to meditate. This occurs in verse 63. Uh, and that is just an incorrect translation. When we hear that Isaac went out to meditate, uh, we probably imagine him sitting on a grassy hill, meditating, cross-legged. Maybe he's floating in the air like a Jedi uh, while Rebecca approaches him, but that's just not what the text says. The word in Hebrew is suach, and only occurs once in the entire Old Testament, and is probably more related to the Hebrew and Arabic masacha, or even the Hebrew suk. Masacha and suk both mean to anoint, so it's more likely that Isaac was anointing himself either for this marriage or perhaps to cleanse himself after being around his mother's corpse. You can hear the similarity between suach and suk and masacha, so the word that only appears this once in the entire Bible and causes some confusion for translators is probably a very old variation on the ancestor of these different words. So remember, the Old Testament Hebrew has a lot of words that mean the same thing or very similar things, but the words, uh, while appearing similar, have orthographical or phonetic nuances because the authors are deriving their vocabulary from several different Semitic languages. Now, the reason that they did this is debated and will be debated for the rest of time, but the fact that they did it is indeed clear. So, flexibility allowed, the meaning in verse 23 is that he went into the field to anoint himself for some reason, whether that was to cleanse himself after being around his mother's corpse, because remember the story is telling us that he's grieving at this time, or it's anointing himself uh, in preparation for this marriage. Either one makes sense, uh, especially the marriage one, because the insistence that Abraham's servant has uh, on leaving with haste. He doesn't want to stay in Mesopotamia for too long. He wants to get going because everything went according to plan and he knows that his masters will be expecting him back. So that being said, it's reasonable to assume that Isaac had a good guess as to how long it would take the servant to go and get a woman and then come back. So he was either already anointing himself, and it just so happened that they were returning at that time, or he saw them off in the distance and assumed that his wife was approaching, or his soon-to-be wife, so he began to anoint himself. So it lines up with the narrative that we find in this story, but again, my interpretation of this one specific word that only occurs once in the Old Testament is still speculative, although I think it is a reasonable interpretation uh, which uses similar uh, words in the Hebrew language that we find elsewhere in the Old Testament, opposed to looking at the Septuagint or making a simple leap in logic using the context clues in the passage. But again, it's a small detail, so this might be the only time you hear me say this. Hear it how you want to hear it. All right, that's it for this week. Thank you for joining us. And remember, if you see someone who looks like they might need help, the only person responsible for helping them is you. That is the scriptural proclamation. Accept it or perish. Lord have mercy on us all.